0: Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics with me, Ali Ansari and Suzanne Raine, the podcast that looks at geopolitical issues in historical context. It gives us great pleasure today to welcome Chris Lockran who's a senior policy advisor at the Halo Trust.
1: The Halo Trust is, of course, best known for its landmine clearance, but it's wider than that now. And it's an organisation which specifically deals with the consequences of conflict especially its impact on civilians it's currently active in nearly 30 countries around the world with about 10,000 staff almost exclusively drawn from the communities that they work in chris is joining us today to talk about conflict and in our all of our minds is the conflict in ukraine but his experience working with halo and the work that they do around the world i think will will help us to understand this in a, in a truly global way. Chris, welcome. Could you start by um, telling us what the Halo Trust is, is currently doing in Ukraine?
2: Yes, Halo's been in Ukraine since 2016, clearing landmines and unexploded bombs in the east of the country. Um, We have 430 Ukrainian staff. Um, Currently, many of them are supporting the distribution of humanitarian um, and medical supplies and and, uh, and, and risk education messages um, to bomb shelters and other places so people can know the dangers of unexploded bombs um, and hopefully keep them safe, particularly children. I think one of the most interesting things and helpful things though that Halo's done is launch a digital campaign to get these risk education messages um, out on Facebook on Twitter on TikTok um, on all platforms and in doing that we've reached well over 16 million Ukrainians so we hope in the immediate term that will help keep them safe and in the longer term our, our firm hope and intent is to get back to our core work as well of clearing the extensive contamination from rockets mortars missiles projectiles everything that you've seen um, in the harrowing news that, that's going into urban areas and also in rural areas as well
1: Your Staff in Ukraine, obviously, who are now in a terrible situation, and like all Ukrainians, just facing complete uncertainty. Are they specifically trained in disposal of ordnance? Or, or what is it that they were doing before the war started?
2: They are specifically trained in that. They were primarily clearing up landmines, cluster munitions, other forms of unexploded ordnance of bombs, mortars, projectiles um, over in the west of the country. Um, but we've also got highly trained medics on the team and people who are specifically trained in outreach to local communities. So an immediate set of skills that are going to be relevant for clearing up after the current conflict. And in the meantime, helping with the humanitarian response and other organisations work um, as much as they can.
1: And Chris, so so so, thank you. So that's that's the immediate conflict that that's going on now. I know that one of the things that you're really keen to say is um, we in Europe have are feeling very viscerally the impact of this conflict because it is in Europe. But obviously, Halo has been working on conflicts around the world for a very long time, and we are all conscious that we're feeling this one acutely because it is on our doorstep, but but that doesn't mean it's any lesser conflict or any less an impact on the people who live in the in the place and conflict than, than any of the other conflicts. So talk us through the broader picture from your perspective that this is this is one conflict of of very many, sadly.
2: Thanks, yeah, it is, and it's a major one, um, and as you said, it's brought conflict to the minds of many people in, in the, the UK and Europe, but co- conflict is a major global challenge, and one that often isn't talked about enough, it's often perceived um, as being something that's too tricky, or too difficult, or too risky to engage with, but actually the cost of not engaging with conflict is huge. So there's around 30 to 40 active conflicts, more countries involved in conflicts around the world, mainly cross-border, complex, often involving non-state armed groups, often involving improvised explosive devices at, IR, at IEDs. But the cost of conflict to the world is measured very much in human cost, but also in economic and environmental cost. So on the human side, um, the World Bank estimates that by 2030, two-thirds of the world's poor are going to be living in fragile and conflict-affected states. Right now, conflict also drives 80% of humanitarian need. So you've got to take conflict seriously if you want to address major human challenges in fragile states and on the economic side it's roughly at the cost of conflict is around 14 and a half trillion dollars a year and that's 10 percent of the world's economic activity so it's not just the human cost but the economic cost and increasingly the environmental cost of conflict and also the environmental impact of climate change driving conflict
0: it, I was very struck, actually. I mean, you said you've been working in Ukraine since 2016, because, of course, you know, for many people, we've only just become suddenly accustomed to the fact that there's a conflict going on. But it's been obviously simmering on for some time. And uh, but we've largely been sort of like sheltered from it. And, and uh, you know, also in terms of the other conflicts, I mean, you were saying there are 30 to 40 active conflicts again, which are not really at the forefront of our imagination at the moment. But of course, Afghanistan is a very serious problem, isn't it? I know you're continuing your work there.
2: Absolutely. Afghanistan, a a long running high profile conflict that was rightly in the news um, for much of last year, particularly in the context of the NATO withdrawal. Halo's been there since its founding, and we have currently 2,100 uh, Afghan D-miners working across the country. And I think it's important not to forget Afghanistan. There's nearly 24.5 million people in need of humanitarian assistance, so roughly half the population, and 23 million people facing acute hunger. So we mustn't forget Afghanistan, and critically, having withdrawn NATO states particularly need to look at how they can support Afghanistan and make sure that it doesn't fall back into conflict, back into warlordism and back into the the, the war economies that have plagued it for the past. And so employing Halo staff is one of the ways that states can do that. It gives dignified employment and it promotes the economy at the grassroots level. So it's really important that we don't forget Afghanistan, but also countries like the U.K., Invest in organisations like ours and other leading humanitarian organisations who can really assist in helping Afghanistan's people and communities get back on their feet.
1: One of the things, Chris, that's striking when we talk about conflict, and that, as Ali said, you know, you, you, we'd all be challenged to mention to name thirty active conflicts, but that's because. Some of them are very complicated, and in a way, one of the things that's happened on Ukraine is is so blatant. It is such a one state invading another that it, it's shocking because of that. Whereas a lot of the conflicts that are going on now are, as you said, in some way. I think there is a statistic actually which says that of the, of the thirty something hot conflicts in the world all but four of them are essentially within states rather than between states. So you have, for various different reasons, some kind of civil war, which is not saying that they're only within states because often other states are meddling in them for their own purposes. So Yemen would be a really good example where it's a civil war, but but actually there are so many other interested actors who could say the same about Afghanistan, actually, obviously. So so that that question then about... How you address these long-running, properly complicated social inter-societal conflicts within states is something I know that that you've been thinking about quite a lot, and I think that what your one of your main arguments is is that we focus entirely on the conflict and not on the bit that comes after the conflict, which is how you end the conflict in such a way that it doesn't happen again.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point to make, that most current conflicts sort of fester on and are at risk of flaring up again. So you don't have that sort of typically clear peace deal, end of conflict, post-conflict period. You have sort of intractable fragility where Environmental concerns, societal concerns, poor governance, um, and 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 the destruction of, of of conflict, all act as threats that can make conflict and um, flare up again. And I think you, you mentioned interference in conflict, intervention in conflict. Actually, last year saw one of the highest levels of external intervention in conflicts around the world, but that wasn't humanitarian intervention and it wasn't peace-building intervention. It was mainly intervention by states that had an interest in the outcome or increasingly an interest in the resources and political economy of that particular conflict. So that's another thing that risks flaring things up again and exacerbating them rather than bringing them to a conclusion.
0: Can I ask Chris when you're operating in these in these and Suzanne says a lot of these are sort of like what we would describe as almost civil conflicts. I mean say if you're in Syria are you operating in somehow with the the cooperation of the Syrian government? I mean how how do you operate in these places?
2: Halo's operational in northeast Syria and it works with local partners there. Yeah, the, 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 there are some organisations active in Syria. It's very difficult. And it, it, frequently you end up uh, as an organisation able to work in one part and not the other. Um, and now in the case of Afghanistan, HALO able to work completely across the country. Previously, it was working in some areas controlled by the Taliban, others controlled by the government. And the main thing is to talk to parties to a conflict, explain why you're doing it, what you're doing, that it's humanitarian in goal, and critically to talk to the communities that you work with. Because without community consent, you can't get very much done very safely or easily, which is why it's so important for organisations like us that 98, 99% of our staff are from the communities that they're working to serve.
0: Thanks, Chris. So uh, what's the sort of connection between, in a the sense, the, the, the aid that we're giving and, and, and the conflicts that are, that are ongoing? How, do we, how, how does that work?
2: I think it's fair to say it probably doesn't work as effectively as it should. And that's an area that Halo has been calling for policy change in for quite some time, particularly in the UK. So if you look at the 43 countries with the highest poverty rates, are all fragile and conflict affected and or in sub-Saharan Africa. Yet UK aid doctrine, UK aid philosophy, has been driven almost exclusively by the need to eradicate poverty. Absolutely fantastic goal. But if you don't deal with the climate change and environment issues, but also the uh, fragility and conflict issues, then in a sense, that investment is going to be undone quite rapidly. It's already been undone in some places by the impact of COVID, but it's going to be undone much more seriously if if there's increasing fragility and if we don't deal with conflict, its root causes. And as Suzanne said, its consequences when conflicts fester on and remain at risk.
0: Are you saying, I mean, are you saying, Chris, that what we need is a much more holistic approach to solving these problems in the sense that if the the focus of the UK government is on particular aspects of conflict resolution or or humanitarian aid or whatever, you know, what they're doing is they're ignoring other more fundamental aspects in a way that just allow the situation to either reemerge or to fester on or or, or so on and so forth?
2: Absolutely. I think it's, it's fair to say that conflict, particularly in the UK, has been treated as something that's tricky. Too politically difficult to go near, too expensive, too risky, and that comes after a decade of interventionism in Iraq and Afghanistan, and a decade of isolationism, particularly in leaving leaving Syria alone. Uh, and I think that's that's a decision that many people will will regret in the long term. Um, but now we're sort of stuck with with without a, without a plan to really deal with conflict, and critically, that issue of stabilization. So absolutely, we need to link our aid to our trade policy so that we can promote economies that aren't war economies to our multilateral diplomacy, to our in-country diplomacy, and in many locations to our our defence presence. So we need a much more holistic approach across governments to deal with the causes and consequences of conflict, critically now also linking that to environment, both climate change and biodiversity loss, and something that Halo calls for quite a lot, which is to draw on and use the expertise of Leading UK charities, UK's home to some of the best international aid, development, and environment charities there are. Yet we're, we're not, not a part of the conversation to the extent that we should be.
1: Chris, I think what you're what you're kind of telling us in a depressing way is that it's difficult to come to any other conclusion. That actually, peacekeeping—either we don't try after a war, we. We focus attention, we have limited attention, we focus it, the war some, seems to come to some sort of conclusion and we think, oh brilliant, thank goodness we cannot worry about that anymore, we'll go and do something else now. Or we do try, but we try completely and effectively with, with peacekeeping efforts, whatever they are and the, the problem then is that you when you look at this in the kind of global strategic sense you say, well, what are the mechanisms that we, the world, have set up to stop conflict, and are any of them doing anything really to stop conflict? And I, I mean, that sounds harsh, but you know, we have the United Nations. It's clearly not worked in the case of Ukraine. Uh, it's clearly not worked in the, you know, I mean, Yemen. Uh, it, it, it's something where where engagement from the international community or from Western states. Doesn't necessarily seem to be very effective at bringing an end to conflict, and and yet it's, it's difficult to see how how one might have another solution to bring an end to conflict.
2: I think it's an incredibly complex and difficult issue, but I think if there's one thread that's running through, through through NGOs, think tanks working on this, it's the importance of dealing with conflict at the national and local level and really working with communities, working with governments, working with regions, rather than arriving to fix it. And actually really trying to build resilience and provide economic alternatives to a war economy. And people often think that when when there's a war, there's a vacuum. There's no such thing as a vacuum. There's actually economies that are are negative economies. They, They involve the illicit economy, poor governance, the movement of Arms, the trafficking in and um, in rare earth metals, tra- trafficking in people, and so you can't fix those issues just by what might have been old-fashioned peacekeeping. You you need to work with um, with communities at the state and regional level to build alternatives which are more resilient and, frankly, more profitable than remaining in conflict. So we need to look at it in a very different way to how we we have done over the last um the last few years.
1: I'm just thinking about Ukraine at the moment. And I mean, maybe this is this is this is a, such a clear example of state aggression that that those suggestions simply don't apply because this is in the in the middle of the hardest part of the fighting in a way. So so let's park that issue because that's a separate discussion about who needs to respond to Russia and and how but but if we focus on the the consequences and the stabilization and what we've got is the most enormous flow of refugees that Europe has seen since second world or just a mass movement of of people what what should be happening in your view now
2: You're right to say that Ukraine is different to many of the conflicts around the world. It is in both its scale, intensity, and you said it's such a a harsh invasion um, of a a country um, in the way that it's happened. The mass movement of people in terms of scale is huge. But not actually uncommon in many other locations. Um, but the question here is: what, do the European, what does the European neighbourhood do, and what does it need? And I think the organisations like Halo, other NGOs, are looking at how they can support um, on, on the border of Ukraine. Our intent, as soon as we can, is to be inside Ukraine and um, clearing up unexploded ordnance. But I think it's fair to say that the humanitarian issue and the uh, the, the, the scale of it is going to completely uh, stress various countries across Europe and also the, the UN and the NGO capacity as well. So there's a question of what NATO may do um, and the way in which the UK and the European Union can um, can cooperate to, um, to deal with the scale of the crisis. But in other locations, particularly in Africa, this scale of movement of people is quite normal in a conflict. It shouldn't be, but it is. And actually, that's further exacerbated when you look at the impact of climate change and climate migration as well.
0: I wanted to drill down a couple of, on the, a couple of the sort of solutions and stuff you were talking about, uh, Chris, which, you know, very interesting about, you know, obviously the, the connectivity of all these sort of issues. So obviously fragility, the humanitarian, the, the environmental aspects. I mean, I remember years and years ago when I was finishing my, uh, actually my postgraduate degree, at, we were sitting, it was just as the, uh, well, here, here's an admission, just as the, you know, the Cold War was coming to an end. And one of my tutors sort of said that the chief uh, problem that will affect your generation she said will be global poverty i mean that will be the thing that will drive conflict and in some ways you know uh, this has obviously been borne out although one of the other issues of the the conflict with ukraine and russia's invasion of ukraine i mean goes to the heart of something else you you talk about which is about good governance now if we're promoting good governance i mean one of the one of the problems and correct me if i'm wrong but it seems to be that one of the things that putin doesn't didn't want was actually good governance in Ukraine. I mean, it was, he was a bit worried about that taking up. So, how do we, you know? How do we actually? You know, in some ways, some of the things that you're talking about, very commendable. But how, how do we actually address these things? How do we address a situation where we have autocrats and authoritarian rulers who are not interested actually in the development of, you know, these these aspects that you're, you're talking about, good governance, you know, the, the, the proper handling of uh, of aid and developing a sort of a sustainable environment? Here's Putin basically saying that actually the last thing I want. Is Ukraine to be, you know, a stable democratic uh, country, and I'm going to do everything I can to disrupt it. And presumably, there are other countries, obviously in 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 uh, in the world, uh, similarly led by authoritarian regimes, who are also quite keen to stop these sort of things developing. So, in terms of good governance, I mean, do you understand good governance to be really this sort of notion of developing sort of democratic accountability? Uh, is 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 that what we're talking about, or? Uh, you know, do you see it in slightly different ways? How do you, how do you manage it? How, how, do, how do we cope with this sort of the, the different political systems that populate our world?
2: I think good governance is absolutely critical to what we're talking about. And, and again, Ukraine is, is all, all, almost a sort of unique situation there. But in, in many locations, there's you know, good, good governance, fragility, conflict, and poor economic growth go together as a packet, a basket of issues. And this is, uh, what you really want to strive towards um, is, is this concept of positive peace. So not just an absence of conflict, but where you have good governance, growing economies, better environmental performance, uh, but better societal cohesion. And actually, one of the ways of doing that is through trading relationships and the way trading relationships can be structured between countries like the UK and others. Um, and actually incentivising both good governance and equitable trade relationships, not exploitative trade relationships that can often actually fuel poor governance and and as a consequence, fragility. So trade often not, not, not very popular in the aid world, I think it's fair to say, but actually the way trade is conducted and the way particularly countries like the UK approach emerging markets can actually help and promote good governance. And I think the, the aid community really needs to embrace that discussion. But also not just look at aid as a sticking cluster that's going to fix some of these enormous problems and, and certainly not fix other people's problems for them, but actually look at the role of capital markets and look at the way economics itself can incentivize this concept of positive peace, democratic accountability and governance. And in countries like Angola, which was in, in, in a in a very tricky situation for very many years with poor governance, actually the the, the government changed that, and it has incentivized different forms of foreign direct investment. It's worked closely with the IMF, and, it, and it's it's changed very many issues that have plagued the country with corruption and poor governance for many years. So it does show that the role of trade, the role of international relations, and incentivising good governance and partnership, not exploitative relationships, can lead to good results.
0: So what happens? Uh, what if someone? Raises the question and says, but Chris, we've been doing this with Russia. We've been doing it with China. We've been trading. We've been trying to build relationships. And look what's happened. I mean, it hasn't worked out as we thought. I mean, what would your response to that, that question be?
2: Again, I think the, the issue of Russia is first and foremost in everyone's minds and massively important. But it's not the only relationship there is and i think actually we we, we we need to look at the ukraine situation and the russia situation in, in a way slightly differently to many of the other countries that are, are are much easier to 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 work with and address particularly in africa and that's some of the emerging economies of africa um and uh, and the, the the opportunities there to work in this way that i'm talking about um don't need to be blocked by what's what's dominating the headlines um, in in, in Ukraine. So I think the the key thing is to find, in terms of trading relationships, aid partnerships, um, environmental partnerships, particularly in Africa, um, countries that we can work with, um, as well as dealing with the crisis in Ukraine that needs to rightly be on the front pages of the uh, the newspapers and also an aid priority for all of us.
1: What you're talking about is obviously desirable and laudable, but requires systemic reform, not just of the aid sector, but actually, as you say, of the way that the world governs itself to some extent. Because I think what you're talking about is this marriage of policies to deal with poverty, with policies to deal with climate change and biodiversity loss, with policies to deal with the end of conflict while at the same time being very conscious that um, the era when the West imposes its brilliant ideas on everybody else has, has passed, for the time being at least. And and therefore, this has to come from, exactly as you said, country, the affected countries themselves, but also be supported by countries who have typically played the role of spoilers in, in some of these areas. And obviously, China and Russia are... are are the, the sort of main ones that are always flagged at a time like that but but there are others who have different policies on climate change who have different all that seems a tall order I know you have some thinking about timescales <laughs> would you like to share those with us?
2: Yeah I will and I think it's uh, it's obviously the multilateral level um, always has spoilers and it's important as we saw in COP last year to get as far as you can. And there were some good commitments came out of COP26 in Glasgow, right at the end, not exactly the ones we all wanted. But there were still good things there. So I think two things. One, work with that which is good. And secondly, sometimes you don't need consensus to start doing the right thing. We've seen that in the disarmament sphere over the years. Sometimes you just have to get on with it with with those who are willing um, and able. So... the first thought there the second in terms of time scales we've got to think long term so the issues that we're really focusing on here climate conflict and the way trade and economics is done are three of the trickiest issues that people tend not to want to pick up in the next election cycle and but actually they're longer than even the 2030 sustainable development goals probably even longer than the 2050 climate goals what we're really looking at is a systemic change over the rest of the century really which is going to do things differently deal with the massive issue resulting from global warming the consequences of biodiversity loss and a hugely growing um, a hugely growing population particularly on the african continent which is going to put further pressure on the environment and conflict so i think that the long term horizon is absolutely key secondly we need to really look at local action and support it and enable it and link that to the global in a way that perhaps multilateralism in the past hasn't done so small scale projects the great green wall is actually a really interesting example of this so the the, the, the project the initiative to build to reforest and um, or sorry to, to, to forest from east um to to the west of africa to stop the spread of the sahara it didn't work when people tried to do it for the continent but actually, it's been a hugely locally-led initiative that's working very, very well, including in places that aid agencies can't reach because they're too remote and they're too fragile. But local communities are getting out there and planting trees and community action, and it's going to have an effect. So we've got to link the global, uh, local to the global. If we, uh, if if we really want to see those changes, but as I said, we can't. We should strive for consensus, but we should get going with those who want to make it happen now
0: so what, one of the great themes that i think is coming up and it's actually a theme of these podcasts in a sense is that what we need is a strategy and a coherent strategy to sort of approach things and i mean you know you're you know you're saying here that you know we need to as, as suzanne was saying a systemic change effectively and and something that's holistic and, and and looks at things from the looks at things from the ground up again and 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 and, and sees how things link together effectively i mean one of our problems being uh, i think in and dare I say, policymaking circles, I mean, I hesitate to, to wade into that, but in sort of certain policymaking circles is that we tend to look at things in the particular rather than the general in that sense, and, and things don't join up. And as a consequence, you know, things, as you say, fester on, because we're ignoring, you know, some of the uh, uh, some of the consequences of what we do.
1: I was reading Tom McTague the other day, who was venturing to suggest that what Ukraine teaches us is that we can't, rely on structures that we set up after the second world war lasting forever in the same form and continuing to do the things that that we set them up for and it may be that we reach a stage where we say we need to we need to look again at how these what these organizations do and how they do it and maybe we need need to renew them or refresh them or reshape them for the challenges that we now have, because they self-evidently have not enabled us to prevent a significant conflict with significant loss of life in Europe, and that should be a wake-up call, if nothing else, is I think. Um, but Chris, the other point that I've drawn from what you're saying, and, and you say it very compellingly, is about not walking away when when the hot conflict. Finishes, And you could argue, of course, that that is sort of what we did in, in Ukraine from 2014 onwards. We thought, well, that's sort of over and nobody's very happy, but we'll just deal with something else now. But in fact, nothing is resolved if the, the factors that have caused the conflict in the first place remain in place.
2: I think you're absolutely right there. And I think you, you, we talk about uh, sort of the, the silos and, 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 and reform of systems, um, very, very frequent topics in policy discussion. I think it, we, we do need to always look at how multilateral institutions can evolve and be fit for purpose, also knowing that they're never going to be perfect and they take a long time to reform. But I think what we can do, in, particularly in the UK, in international policy is stop siloing it in government and stop treating it as silos in civil society, NGO and policy spheres. We must be more holistic. The UK promised that in its integrated review. It's yet to deliver it. So the concept's right, but it needs to deliver it. It needs to be more joined up on the issues of conflict. It needs to bring trade into the equation, as I've said repeatedly, and it needs to fund it. And it needs to fundamentally look at poverty reduction in aid as part of a much bigger system, that really must be tied together. But one of the biggest drivers in this, I think is, that I said it earlier on, but it's the role of the private sector and the city. And what we've seen there is a, a big shift and a big change towards the, the, the environment, the societal, the governance, the ESG type approach based on a city and a client base and public that expect trade and prosperity to do the right thing. And I think that's an incredibly compelling and powerful driving force that can't be left out the equation. So we've got to look at the way trade is done, the way trade is, uh, is conceptualized internationally, domestically, and really harness the power of that. Otherwise, we're just talking about aid in a silo or defense in a silo. If we're talking about the way international trade economics works in a way that's values-driven, sustainable, dealing with planetary issues, promoting good governance, and actually also helping to end and alleviate poverty. We've got a huge driving force that can actually be the engine of that system change. As somebody put it, aid is the yeast, yeah, the economy is the flour. If you're baking, we need to really embrace that.
0: That's a very, very very good metaphor, actually. And, uh, and I think I like the idea, that, as you say, that this is, you know, I always have this debate with colleagues about the difference between ideals and interests and basically saying that, you know, it is not against your interests to pursue these ideals, you know, these ideals of, uh, you know, serve your interests in that way. And and that's what I hear what you're saying, really, that if you're talking to the private sector as well um, and the city and others, you're saying that actually these things are in your interest. (laughs) They're They're not something that's just simply for the aid sector to sort of like, you know, be doing good around the world and i think that that's a you know a vitally important point i mean it's it, it's something i hope we can uh, and you certainly and the halo trust can basically uh, impress upon the various powers that be certainly in the private sector
1: so um chris i think we're out of time thank you very much for joining us today you've given us an ambitious agenda <laughs> which an ambitious but very serious and important agenda that um, it is it is right that you you should set out because it's really important as as we face conflicts on our doorstep that that we recognize that this is this is a problem all around the world all the time for so many millions of people and and we do need to think of different ways to address it so thank you for joining us Chris um we very much appreciate it and um, Join Ali and I in a couple of weeks' time for the next one. Thank you. Bye-bye.